Well, I'm so excited about what I want to show you from God's Word in the next two weeks from two chapters in the Bible. Two chapters in the Bible that are Paul's most personal, endearing, put his heart on the line chapters from from that book. He wrote about 12 letters, but one letter is the most personal where he just puts his heart out on the line. It's the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to dig into 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 where Paul talks about the grace of God. And that's not a new thing for Paul. He's all about grace, grace, grace. He mentions that more than any other author in the Bible. But here's what's different. He's going to talk about the grace of God in the context of giving. And this letter, more than any other, more than any other, has his longest section where he says the most about the subject of giving. 39 verses. But here's what's interesting. He does it all without ever mentioning the word money. Yeah. He does it all without ever mentioning the word money, which cannot be a mistake. And if if the sound of that word made you uncomfortable and you're like, oh, really? Are we going to talk about money at church? Let me help you. Regardless of how old you are, gender, skin color, Regardless of any other factors in life, for every single one of you, a huge part of life, it just is what it is, a huge part of life will be spent making money, handling money, spending money, saving money. So it should come as no surprise to us that God says a lot in His Word about how to handle money in a way that glorifies Him and does not destroy you. You realize that you can use money in a way that glorifies God because it does incredible good for other people in this world. Money is not the root of all evil. Please banish that. What is the root of all evil? The love of money. And one of the greatest ways you can show you don't love it is you don't keep it all. Money can do great good and bring glory to God or... The way you use it can actually lead to your destruction. And so the stakes are too high for God to just let us sort this out for ourselves and try to figure it out. Even Jesus, when he was here on this earth, right? You read the four Gospels. Even Jesus, when he was here on this earth, talked about and taught on money and possessions more than any other subject. More than heaven and hell. Why? Because he knows that money is a heart revealer. Can you see anyone's heart? That was weak. No, including your own. But just like Matthew 15 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the... When you talk, I learn about your heart. Guess what else the Bible teaches? When I watch where your money goes, I learn about your heart. It's a heart indicator. You learn something. Money is so tied to the heart and God is after the heart. I hope you realize God doesn't need our money, but he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And so he understands it's such an indicator of where the heart is. And here's what he also understands. And Jesus knew this. It so easily can become a counterfeit God. To us, because it offers some of the same things that God does regarding identity and security. 
And so it quickly can become a counterfeit God. That's why 17 of Jesus' 38 parables were about money or possessions. Because he was going after our hearts. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. Oh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as... I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to God and then to us by the will of God. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what does the Apostle Paul want us to understand about how this glorious doctrine of grace intersects with and impacts how we handle our money. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one. Number one. Your giving is a reflexive response and a glorious exhibition of God's grace in your life. It's a reflexive. It's always a response To an act of God first. God moves and we respond. But something else critical here that Paul's going to unpack. It puts on display to the world something that they cannot see. But there's ways that they see the effects of it. God's grace. God's grace. It's an exhibition of God's grace. Look how he kicks it off in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers... We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Let me give you a little background. What is going on is Paul has been stirring it up. So he's planted churches all over Asia Minor and over into Europe. He has planted churches and now he is stirring it up to get churches to sacrificially and generously give to help Christians in Jerusalem who've suffered a famine. And this letter is to the Corinthians... But he's holding up the Macedonians as an example of how it should look. And he's bringing it to the Corinthians and saying, Oh my goodness, let me tell you about the Macedonians and how they give. In other words, he's saying the Macedonians are an example of Christians who are leading 
the way in putting on display the grace of God through giving. And here's what's interesting. That church in Corinth, right? He's already written them once. In the first letter, he talked about how gifted they were, right? You've got spiritual gifts all over the place. What were they lacking? Do you remember in that first letter? We've got the most famous chapter that gets read at weddings and practiced in no homes. The love chapter. Because he said, oh my goodness, I don't care how gifted you are. If you don't have love, you are just a crashing cymbal and a clanging gong. You don't have love, Corinthians. Now he's bringing a second letter to them. Same place where they've got all kinds of gifts, but he's like, You're not very generous with your money. Gifts are not what it's all about. And we're going to dig into some more. There are two things that the scriptures over and over tell us. This indicates spiritual maturity. This indicates growing to be more like Christ. You know how to love. And love is sacrificially giving to the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. You forgive. You forbear. You accept. You prefer. And you let go of what our world naturally chases after and clings to. These two things are two of the biggest apologetics to a lost and dying world that the gospel is real, that Christianity changes people, that Jesus died, rose again, and lives in us. Love, how do they love each other like that? And sacrificial giving, sacrificial giving, sacrificial giving. And so he's like a father bragging on his kids. He lifts up the Macedonians He's bragging on them and saying, oh, my goodness, look at this. We don't know anything about their gifts. We don't know anything about anything else that characterizes them. But he lifts them up because of their sacrificial, generous giving. He's bragging about the evidence of grace that's put on display by their sacrificial giving. And if that falls flat on you, stay with me a minute. The reason this is such a big deal Hope you realize you can't see grace, you guys. We sing about it. We've got some Christian logo wear with it. I hope you get excited about that concept and that doctrine of grace, but you cannot see grace. You can't hold it in your hand. You can't march into a lab and measure it in a test tube, and you can't quantify it or graph it out on a chart. All you can do is see the evidence of it in the lives of men and women who have been changed and gripped by it. Grace. Grace. Oh, look at that. How does she do that? How does he do that? Amazing grace. And so when Paul sees it, there's no place in the Bible where he goes on and on and says about to other churches, oh, look at the Corinthians. Amazing gifts. Gifts all over the place. Look what they can do. Silence. When he sees it, he writes two whole chapters about it. Because he knows love for each other and sacrificial giving are two of the biggest apologetics to a lost and dying world. Because I hope you realize the world does not know how to love and does not want to let go of their money. They don't know how to love and they do not want to let go of their money. 
So when these two things begin to show up, that's why it's such a horrible testimony, you guys, when Christians bicker and fight and the police have to show up at a deacon's business meeting because someone slammed someone else against the wall. It's like the world says, we can do that at the Moose Club. We hate each other too. When you love and it's diverse and you think, but you guys aren't even the same. How do you get along? Yeah, there's a resurrected Savior. And when they watch you live looser to the things of this world and let go of money in a way that they would never, ever think to do. They're like, what do you have that we do not have? What happened to you? And so it's no accident. It cannot be an accident that all the way through these two chapters, he never uses the word money. And as often as he can, he replaces the word give with the word grace. Because he's not pressuring anyone to give. He's wanting to show you the engine behind giving. He wants to talk about grace and help you to realize it's grace that begins to motivate someone to truly give generously and sacrificially. He replaces the word grace. I mean, the word give with the word grace as many times as he can. Because he wants them to understand When you give sacrificially, you put on display grace and you show the world a little like we can't see grace. Can you see God? And you can't see God. But when you give generously and sacrificially, you give the world a little glimpse of what God is like. He's generous. He's lavish. He's a giver, not a taker. He's a lover, not a hater. You put on display a little glimpse of what God is like. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 1. He talks about the grace of God in Macedonia. He's talking about how they gave money. In verse 6 he says, complete this act of grace. But he's talking about, go on and do what you promised to do. Give that money. In verse 7 he says, see that you excel in this act of grace. So he's talking about, Give lots of money. Just like you excel in knowledge and faith, excel in this. Excel in this. This grace of giving. In verse 19, he talks about how they should carry out this act of grace. And he's talking about follow through with what you promised. You said, oh my goodness, we want to give generously. Oh, we want to give sacrificially. Oh, I want to change how I'm... Often we'll have a new thought and a new desire. And follow through doesn't happen. He says, follow through. Follow through with this. And then in verse 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about, you could just replace right there, grace with give, how Jesus gave, left the riches and glories of heaven and stepped into this world to give. He came to give us what this world could never give us. In other words, Paul reframes the whole issue of giving And money. And he does it around this glorious word, grace. Why? Because he wants to lift this concept of giving out of the pits of mechanics and pressure and duty and obligation and legalism that says, all right, how much do I have to give to get God off my back? Let me just throw him a little something there. Happy? Paul doesn't want that. Paul doesn't want to do that. 
He's like, that's so he's bringing grace, 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 grace. Here's what's going on. Paul understands that Christians who are gripped by grace stop asking how much do I have to give? And they start saying, how much can I give? Please let me give. Where are the needs? What can I get in on? How can I rearrange my life and stop consuming everything God sends me? And how could I free up more resources to get in on what God's doing and to give and to give and to give? And some of you right now might be thinking, Brad, shut up. Does anybody live like this? Yeah, they do. The Macedonians did. And here's what you need to realize. At all three campuses, there are people sitting around you that do. There are people sitting around you that have done it for decades now. How? Why? And you say, good. I'm sure they're like, they're the wealthy in our church, and so they should. Nope. Nope. In fact, if you read statistics, you'll find the most generous givers are the very poor and the worst givers are the middle class because they just still are trying to live that American dream and they just want it all. And they're so busy just expanding a little more. The Macedonians, here's what you need to understand. The Mas- Macedonia was an area that had been hit the hardest economically and they had been plundered of their goods when the Romans conquered them. And yet they were the most generous. Look at verses 3 and 4. I'll show you what I'm talking about. They did not give the most because they had the most to spare. That's how we always think. They gave the most because they were the most gripped by God's grace. Look at verses 3 and 4. For they gave according to their means. Look at me. We can all relate to that, right? You sit down and you think, all right, what could we give? Oh, nothing. Or let's live life to the fullest, do everything we want to do and see what's left. They gave according to their means. That part we can relate to. Oh, but he doesn't stop. As I can testify and beyond their means. Oh, because someone guilted them. Someone put pressure. Someone, he makes it clear, of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. In the relief of the saints. The NIV translates it this way. The NIV says, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. Oh, listen to me. Have you come to the point in your life yet that you see giving away your money as a privilege? Or for you, is it still a burden and a tax? Right? Oh, my goodness. I became a Christian and now I've got county. I mean, I pay Boone County tax. I pay Kenton County tax because I work in one. I live in another. I got state tax. I've got federal tax. And doggone it, I became a Christian. I've got a God tax. Everybody wants my money. Just get in line, God. Now I got a God tax. Oh, my goodness. If that's your attitude, here's what will happen. Because I hope you realize I don't cheat on my taxes, but I'm not opposed to being very, very, very clever 
and figuring out how little can I give? What do I need to do? Do I need to keep records? Do I keep receipts? Do I, do I shape it this way? That's not wrong. I don't want to go to jail, but I don't want to give them more than I have to. Folks, if you've got your giving back to God in that same category, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's not a burden. It's not a tax. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. And it is evidence of God's amazing grace in your life. As long as you see it as a burden or a tax, you'll keep saying, how little can I give? When you start leaning into it as an act of grace, three times he uses that phrase, act of grace, to refer to giving. When you start leaning into it as an act of grace, that's when you'll start saying, how much can I give? Show me a need. Show me what I can be a part of. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent little book, The Treasure Principle, great book. We've got some copies of it if you want one. Explains it this way. He says, quote, Our giving is a reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. It doesn't come out of altruism or philanthropy. It comes out of the transforming work of Christ in us. This grace is the action. Our giving is the reaction. We give because he first gave to us. And then I love this word picture. As thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. He understands what the scriptures say. He understands what Paul is saying. As thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. Grace. Listen to me. Sacrificial giving doesn't follow religion. If you're just caught up in religion, you'll still cling to your money. Sacrificial, generous giving doesn't follow church traditions. It doesn't follow you trying to be a better person. You can do all that and still hold tight to your money. Oh my goodness. Generous, sacrificial giving follows knowing that you've been saved By amazing grace. That that your salvation, your future, your hope, where you stand with God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. Yesterday at the gym, a guy walked up to me who attends our church and said, I got to tell you something. I brought a friend a few weeks ago and your message was such a good proclamation of the gospel. And she grew up in church her whole life and she's been rocked. I've given her two books and she's just rocked and growing. And I said, what happened? And she said, I just can't believe it has nothing to do with me. It's not on me. It's such a relief. It's such a relief. It's such a relief that it's all what he's done. Bingo. That when you are rocked by amazing grace, it's lightning. And as thunder follows lightning, giving. Follows grace. You say you've experienced amazing grace. Where's the thunder of your giving? Where's the thunder? Where's the thunder? There ought to be some thunder rolling out of your lives. Some of your lives are way too quiet in the area of giving. Grace is a noisy, raucous, radical word. And when it explodes in a life, there ought to be some thunder roaring and rolling out of it. Now, 
please trust, I understand. Some of you, I don't know when you got saved. You had already made a colossal financial mess of your life. It may take you some time to dig out of that, but decide to dig out of it. Decide you're not going to just bump along your whole life this way. Maybe you were characterized by extreme selfishness or looking to money as a security in your life because you grew up not having it. I don't know what your issues are, but they're all sin issues that we all have. Don't just keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. Make a plan to break out of it and to change. Let the thunder for you be. That thunder is rumbling in me saying, we got to change. We got to make a plan. We've got to do something different because... I want to give. I want to be a giver. I want to be a lover. I want to be a giver. I want to be a lover. I want to be a giver. I want to be a lover. I want to be a giver. Let me ask you: How noisy is your giving, and what does it give evidence of or put on display in your life, my friends? Little or no giving could be an indication of little or no grace in your life. Because the real issue at stake is saving grace. The real issue at stake is saving grace. That's why Paul makes it clear he doesn't want to command anyone to give. You realize that? He doesn't want to command anyone to give. In these 39 verses, two chapters, he never just throws down the gauntlet and commands them. Why? Because if you have to be commanded to give, you've got a much bigger problem. Much bigger problem. And so Paul makes it clear. I don't want to command you. Look at it in verse 8. He comes right out and says it. Verse 8, chapter 8. I say this not as a command. So maybe you're thinking, Brad, why doesn't he just exercise apostolic authority and throw down the gauntlet and say, remember, this is the apostle Paul talking. I was caught up in the heavens. I saw visions. I've seen Jesus I've written a bunch of other letters. I'm a kind of a big deal. Give. I tell you why he doesn't. Because the apostle Paul understands. He understands that it's about the heart. And he knows the amount somebody gives out of duty or guilt or pressure will always pale in comparison to what grace produces in a life. Grace is a powerful thing, you guys. It doesn't just save us, it changes us, and it enables us to live radically different. He knows he doesn't want to see what commands and legalism can accomplish. He was a Pharisee, he was caught up in that. He's seen plenty of that. He is so thrilled about the grace of God in his own life and the grace of God in believers, he wants them to experience what grace can accomplish. Duty, guilt, legalism, it'll always pale in comparison. And also, he doesn't want a command because he knows a command can never change the heart. And Paul's after the heart because he knows God's after the heart. Because God doesn't need our money, but he wants our hearts. And he knows this is such a huge indicator of where our hearts so often are. That's why God and Jesus talk about it so much. But here's what else I want you to notice tied to that. Number two, you'll never give your money to other people until you first give your life to God. 
You'll never give your money to other people till you first give your life to God. You need to understand money was not the first thing the Macedonians gave away. That's not where it started. You've got to back it up. They had first given themselves. They'd already given away something that we find much harder to give away than money. Our very life. Self. I have a new master. I don't call the shots. I don't sit on the throne. They've given away their lives first. Look at it in verse 5. And this, not as we expected. Paul's saying, we, we, ha- we did not expect them to give this much. This, not as we expected. How did it happen? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Listen to me. Some of you find it so hard to let go of your money because you've not truly let go of your life yet. And money is very often associated with life. That's where real life is. That's where it's at. It's really hard to let go of it when you think that's the very source of life. That is what it's all about. But until you've let go of your life, you'll always be saying, tell me the bare minimum of what I have to do and I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Have you ever given your life to God? That's what it means to be a Christian, I hope you realize. Not to get baptized, not to sign a card, not to join a church, not to shake a pastor's hand. To give your life to Jesus and say... I'm yours. All of me. I'm holding nothing back. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Rule and reign. Lead me. Love me. Help me. I'm following you. I'm not calling the shots anymore. Randy Alcorn captures it well when he says this. He says, giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It dethrones me and exalts him. Joyful, not all right. It's a joyful, giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It dethrones me and exalts him. Has there come a point in your life where you've been dethroned. See, very often I hear people talk and it sounds like this. I was moving along through life and I decided to be a really good thing. I heard a couple sermons or I had a Christian friend talk to me and I added Jesus to ride shotgun with me. Every now and then I even say, Jesus, take the wheel. But not on my money. That's usually when I'm sick or I'm scared. Take the wheel. But regarding money, get your hands off the wheel and stay buckled up, Jesus. Like a ride at King's Island. Keep the hands in the lap. Don't be reaching over here. Right? The Bible teaches no concept of Jesus riding shotgun, you guys. True, born-again, amazing grace salvation has you in the trunk. And he's driving. And you can't even see where they're going. You're comfortable. You haven't been beaten like a hostage thing. But you don't even know where you're going. But you're like, I'm all right with it. It's so much better having Jesus lead the way and take me. And I know he'll help me when we get there, wherever there is. That's so different than I'm still in the driver's seat and he rides shotgun. Have you been yet dethroned? It dethrones self 
and exalts Him. Him. Have you experienced a joyful surrender yet in your life that brings about, oh my goodness, a joy and a peace and a purpose and a hope that you never had before? And that's what causes you to live more loose to the things of this world. Your identity and your security and your hope are not fixed in circumstances and the stuff of this world. And it causes you to begin to live radically different. But let me bring a word that might encourage some of you. Number three, if you're thinking, I'm not trying to convince everybody in this room you're lost. If you're thinking, but I still really struggle, Brad. I truly think I'm born again. But, oh, man, I still have these moments like, oh, we're going to need that. We'll probably need that. No, no, don't, no, don't, don't. Welcome. You're not alone. I wish I could say when God saves us, he just frees us to totally trust him. You still have a sinful flesh, and so do I, that still can revert back and say, I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but I still better hold on to this right now. So here's what you need to know, number three. Here's how it begins to get better. Your level of joy in things outside of this world will determine your generosity with things in this world. Here's what I mean by that. If you're a Christian that is largely ignorant or uninformed about what is yours in Christ now, you'll still keep living very much the same way you were living. Your level of joy in things outside of this world that are yours changes the generosity with the things of this world. How am I going to stay aware of what I have outside of this world? How am I going to be stirred and joyful about... Same thing I always say you got to read the Bible. As I'm reading this, I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, look at what, my, no condemnation for me. Oh, riches in Christ for me. Oh, an inheritance for me. Oh, I'm adopted. Oh, I'm accepted. Oh, I'm forgiven. Oh, I, oh, he's preparing a place for me. To, oh, 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 and this is a moment. This is a moment. This is a moment. This is a vapor. Everything in this world pulls me down to this world, you guys, like a magnet. That makes you think right here, right now is what matters most. This is the only way I know to burst through that and begin to have a level of joy in things outside of this world. And a hope that's fixed on a future that can't be shaken or taken from me. Instead of things right here, right now that are very unpredictable. That can be shaken and taken. Look at what's going on in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of, say the word, joy, joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but that one verse has packed into it four of the most incongruous phrases that have ever been asked to form a sentence together. I hope it struck you as odd. Severe test of affliction. That word affliction means to be pinched, pressed in a narrow space. Things are not going well. You feel like the walls are coming in. Severe test of affliction. Abundant joy. What? Not just poverty. Extreme poverty. Overflowing wealth of generosity. We would put severe test of affliction and extreme poverty together in a sentence. And we would put abundance of joy and overflowing wealth of generosity together. But not these four things. This makes no sense. This is not normal. This is not natural. Bingo. 
It's supernatural. This is what happens in the lives of men and women when their greatest treasure is found in things outside of this world and their greatest hope is fixed on something outside of this world instead of immediate circumstances and it's things that can't be shaken or taken. You begin to live radically different in a way that's startling, in a way that stands out. You say, Brad, what kind of spiritual riches are we talking about? What do you mean? They're joy and riches outside of this world. I'm talk- it's all through the Bible if you would read it, but I'm talking about places where Paul talks about spiritual riches in places like Ephesians 1, where he creates one of the longest run-on sentences in the world. English teachers go nuts. But it's because he's so excited, he can't even... So he takes a big breath in Ephesians 1, and then he just goes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He's predestined us to adoption. As sons to himself. How? Because of me? According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. By which he has made us accepted in the beloved. The world may reject you. But you've been accepted by Jesus Christ. And no one can take you out of his hand. Accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound towards us. In all wisdom and prudence. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the praise and glory of God. Now when those kind of things, when you wake up in the morning, regardless of what the the balance is in your checking account and regardless of what your immediate circumstances are like, when you wake up and at least a little of what I just said is real to you, my friend, it will change how you go through your day. It will change how you live. It will change what you do with the things of this world that they chase after and cling to tenaciously. Because your level of joy is more... The Macedonians did not give the most because they had the most to spare. They gave the most because they were the most aware of and moved by their riches outside of this world and the hope that they had apart from this world. I love it every now and then when secular articles or people will bump up against biblical truth. So I found this article from the Raleigh News and Observer published. And in the, in the Raleigh News Observer, there was an article titled Money Talks. And this woman was writing an article to try to help couples understand, not a Christian, why couples have so much conflict over money. They do. It's one of the number one problems. And she says it's because of the, of the way different people approach money and what they think they can do with it. And so she created nine categories. Nine categories for people regarding money. Hoarder. Spender. Binger. Ascetic monk. That's got to be fun to live with. Avoider. A master, worrier, risk taker, risk avoider. And then she goes on to say that each one of these categories, the people that are in them, also 
have defined themselves on a deeper level. She literally says that on a deeper level as to what this world is truly all about and as to how money can lead you to, quote, really living. What leads to really living? Some think, people think what leads to really living is holding on to all of it because I sleep better. Others think what leads to really living is buying everything I want. On and on you could go. Did you notice in that list something altogether missing? Binger, hoarder, worrier, amasser, ascetic monk. Something altogether missing that the Apostle Paul took two chapters to talk about. Joyful. Generous, sacrificial giver. Why is it not on the list? Folks, it's not on the list because no one is born into that category. Being born as sinners, we're naturally all a part of one of these other categories. Hoarder, binger, spender, worrier. The only people that will ever be characterized as generous, joyful, sacrificial givers are people who have been born again and have tasted amazing grace and the lightning of God's grace has exploded and the thunder of generous, sacrificial giving begins to roll out of their lives. And then the world says, wait a minute, there's no category for that. There's no category for that. We work with all kinds of other people, but not you. And you get a chance to witness about the the Jesus Christ that's changed your life. Folks, I live, here's a practical little nugget. I leave big tips, not for people to think I'm amazing. I want to show them a little glimpse of what our God is like, that he's lavish, that he's generous. So that's why I would leave $20 for a meal that was $27. You do the math. I want them when they come over to the table to literally say, oh my goodness, and run in the kitchen and tell all the... Look, 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 look. And I'm also, I wish this wasn't true. I'm also trying to make up with, for so many of you that are terrible. <laughs> terrible. It's going to take me a lifetime. But, oh my goodness, read the statistics and talk to servers. My daughter was a server at Carabas for five years, putting herself through nursing school. And she said, Sunday is the worst day because of you. Christians come in and they're horrible tippers. And then they have the gall to leave a gospel track. My friends, do not leave a gospel track unless you leave a pile of money also. They will go in the kitchen and mock you and say, look at what I got left. They want money. So give them both. As Bonnie Raitt said, let's give them something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. I want them to say, oh my goodness, this guy's a pastor. He left me $20 for it. Now here's the problem also. I'm taking a little tangent, but... Holy Spirit, maybe. Some of you are eating in restaurants as if it's groceries. That's an expensive way to live. That's why you say, well, we can't tip. We can't tip because we're eating out five nights a week. I eat out as a treat, a special occasion. And then I can afford to tip because I go to the store and I buy groceries and I cook at home. Hello, consider that. Eat at home a lot. It's a lot cheaper. And then eat out as a treat and then be a lavish tipper and show our world a glimpse of what our God is like, what our God is like, what our God is like. You just think about it on whatever level that you're on. All of a sudden I'll show up at tire discounters and I've just bought everybody drinks in the summertime when it's 
98 degrees and they're out there in the open garage working on stuff. And I'll just pull up with Frosties and Mountain Dews and ice cold Cokes and all kinds of stuff. And say, I just wanted to bless you. And it blows them away. Again, I'm not trying to toot my horn, but it takes money. But how much money? 30 bucks. But what an impact. They know I'm a pastor. I always go there for my tires. I could go on. Let your life be characterized by the way you're a lavish giver. Yes, with your money. And you give the world a little glimpse of what God is like. So quickly, number four. This is not a small issue, you guys. It's not a a side issue. Your giving is one of the biggest indicators of your spiritual maturity and growth in Christ. It's not like, oh, I know so much more and I'm so much more mature and I've walked with with the Lord many, many, many years. If you're still a pathetic giver, you're still very immature and you're not much like Christ. Giving is one of the biggest indicators of spiritual maturity and growth, not knowledge. Paul knows. Paul said knowledge puffs up. You can know all kinds of Bible stuff, but when you become like Jesus, who's the greatest giver, your life ought to start to reflect Jesus by the way you give to others. Excel in this grace of giving also. I hope you didn't hear. And if you did, let me shatter it. I hope you didn't hear. Oh my goodness, Grace Fellowship wants something from you. We had a terrible year. We're upside down. We're heaving with the third campus. And if you don't sacrificially give, we're not going to make it. Nope. I'm glad I've been here 24 years and I've never had to preach on giving because we were in trouble. Praise God. I do preach on it because people are in trouble. And I would not be a good shepherd to just ignore that. What if I was never addressing sexual purity today? Is there a problem with sexual purity in our culture, even among Christians sleeping around? I'd be a fool to not address it. Is there a problem with money in our culture today? And does it still affect Christians? So I love you. I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. I want for every person at every campus to give their lives to God so that it changes their heart and they begin to see money as a gift from God. And when that lightning explodes, they begin to give it away in a way that's a testimony of the work of God's grace in you and the work of God's son in control of you. That's what I want. So I've got some homework for you. Look on the back panel. On the very back panel, I've given you a number of ways that you could grow in the area of grace giving. And you may choose a a number of different things, but I want everyone to at least do number one. All right? You see number one? I want you to find your place in giving on the chart. Find yourself. And ask God, this year, would you give us grace to grow to the next level? God has grown us and we're grateful. He's added people. But some of you have not yet thought of giving. You've not started giving at all. Others of you, you give, but it's like, you know, once in a blue moon, random, sporadic. And I'm sure you mean well. You intend to. We all intend all kinds of things. Let me help you. One of the best steps you could take is lock it in. Go to push pay. And whatever you choose the amount to be, let it be regular and automatic. 
regularly. It doesn't matter if we're sick, in town, out of town, families here. We had pancakes. I don't care. The money's rolling out of our account because we locked it in and signed up. Others of you, you've been giving regularly and automatically. Stretch and move towards the tithe. And say, you say, oh, you mentioned tithe. That's Old Testament. Right. That's why we don't have to stop at 10%. We can go beyond. Hello. Because it's grace giving. Grace. But at least he gives us an idea. You say, how do I know what generous is? Well, the Old Testament under that burden of the Old Testament was 10. If we're under grace, it gives you kind of an idea. Grow a percentage or two and say, we're going to increase our giving. If you've been locked in at tithing forever because you were taught it by your parents like me, say, God, I would like to grow beyond that into grace giving, extravagant grace giving. Maybe God's increased your income and you're like, I've just left it alone. I'm still giving the same. And please trust me, if you're tithing to our church, you don't need to give another penny to us. Our world has huge opportunities. There are parachurch ministries. Oh my goodness, that are doing great work. I give my tithe here and then I give extravagantly to other people and people who need a house payment and people who have a medical bill and people. And it's a joy. It's a joy. But I had to make plans to do that. I had to cap it on how we were going to expand our level of living. You'll never expand your level of giving if you keep expanding your level of living. Cap it. Decide. And if you're in a mess, sign up for the class. We've got a class that's going to start March 9th. Life, money, legacy. And it's free. Free. Six weeks, and we'll help you think, how would we get out of the, this mess and get on a new path? And then consider grabbing a copy of Randy Alcorn's Treasure Principle. We've got him in the Resource Center. Oh, my goodness. He will light a fire in you for what God might do through you in your giving for the kingdom. Mm. But do. We all don't have to do the same thing. But I'm praying God would move us all to do something that puts on display the grace of of God. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you are God. So that we're not left clean to the false gods of this world like money that disappoint us so easily and destroy us so quickly. Oh God, may your amazing grace in us be seen to those around us by the way we sacrificially let go of what the world chases after and clings to. Put your grace on display. Put your son on display through us by the way we give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.